Here at the Fundraising School, we love to champion fundraising and philanthropy, but we also need to be aware of the critiques of philanthropy and be not afraid. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the Fundraising School, and I'm joined today by Dr. Amir Pasek. He's the Dean of the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And Dean Pasek, you have some interesting observations about the critiques that we're seeing about the philanthropic sector. There have been a, a handful of books in the last couple of years that have called out some concerns about foundations, about the wealthy, uh, and about what that means for philanthropy, about what that means for social justice. What have been some of your reactions? Have you seen those critiques come out into the public square? Well, first of all, I don't think the critiques are new. I think we've always had critiques uh, of, um, the, of, of wealthy people, uh, of, of uh, the generosity of wealthy people, of the foundations as they were formed um, uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And currently, we've had some marvelously smart and intelligent critiques about the concentration of wealth and the power of highly wealthy people to use their philanthropy to alter the public square, which we think should usually in a democracy be uh, decided with one person, one vote. Um, so I think these have been wonderfully inventive uh, uh, critiques, important critiques uh, of uh, um, the concentration of wealth and, and the power that philanthropy can have over our public square. And I think uh, for fundraisers and practitioners, it's important for them to understand um, this critique and to read this critique, um, if for no other reason that it deepens our understanding of philanthropy and it deepens our, uh, our sense of the, the various dimensions uh, that, is, that are involved in generosity, not all of which are necessarily positive. Um, we typically think of uh, generosity being one of the, the, the best things about um, human activity uh, and most faith traditions also reinforce that um, when people are generous and giving is one of the highest expressions of what it means to be human and yet when we organize uh, to to be generous and when it gets uh, tr channeled through various institutions all kinds of unintended consequences can happen and occasionally um, not so positive intended consequences people kind of misusing uh, gifts to to gain favor or or to elevate their positions but i think it's uh, it's it's a good development for philanthropy because it 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 um, forces us to think uh, more more clearly and more more critically about what it is that we do and what consequences our work has Amir, you mentioned history and just a couple of examples. So Andrew Carnegie, his story often is told that, you know, he was this clerk boy working for a newspaper and somewhat of a rags to riches as he rose to wealth and then funded, you know, more than 2,000 libraries across the country and, and, you know, significant philanthropy. And yet then a critic might say, well, if he just only would have paid his employees more, maybe there wouldn't have been the, you know, some of the concerns that his philanthropy was addressing. Or even when we think about the required payout rate of foundations, you know, that's an argument that started around World War II and took 20 to 30 years to finally emanate in the 1969 Federal Tax Reform Act, where found people said, okay, we, we can't use these as you know, tax shelters now or a place to park your money. Uh, we have to have this guaranteed payout rate. What lessons have we learned from history uh, in the, you know, like you said, this is not a new conversation right. that maybe we should be thinking about and helping us apply these critiques to improve ourselves moving forward? Well, I think, uh, as you say, you know, Carnegie's libraries are in some ways being uh, reevaluated. We, we've all th thought of them as an, 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 an unalloyed 
Good, and yet um, I was having a conversation with, with Dwight Burlingame and our faculty yesterday, and he reminded me that some of the municipalities that were offered uh, Carnegie's libraries rejected them at the time because they did not uh, appreciate the way he treated his workers. Uh, and then another professor at Stanford has recently written a book about the New Gilded Age, um, suggesting that uh, the libraries were of limited value because the workers uh, were worked too hard in Carnegie's mills to be able to take advantage of them as well. And of course, uh, Ida Tarbell um, was a huge critique of Rockefeller and, and, and the consolidated trust that he uh, um, uh, presided mm -hmm. over um, uh, as well. So I, I think um, these, these, um, these, these critiques are important and what it, the history teaches us is that uh, that in some ways the, the history is never finished because mm. um, you know maybe 10, 20 years ago the Carnegie and Rockefeller uh, experiences would have been easily uh, referred to as unproblematic and yet today we are rethinking that and remembering the uh, critiques that they faced when they were forming their foundations uh, at the beginning. So um, it's, what, what's interesting to think about is, you know, the, the critiques as we're uh, experiencing them now, you know, you, it's difficult not to think about what, what are they going to be um, thought about, how differently they'll be experienced in 20 years uh, from now and, and how our attitudes might be, might be changing. Um, because it's very difficult to have um, kind of uh, pure, unalloyed, uh, just uh, um, kind of good philanthropy when wealth is involved and large amounts of wealth are involved because large amounts of wealth involve some kinds of dislocations in our society and they don't, usually don't come uh, without uh, consequences uh, for others so that it's very difficult to uh, imagine you know, com completely untainted gifts, if you will. So many of our gifts will come with some compromises involved, and that leads to important uh, decisions that leaders and fundraisers need to make in terms of how do you, how do you engage some of those necessary compromises. Um, if, if there are some kind of compromised sources of wealth, and yet you can do so much good, would you deny the good, the, 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 the mouths you can feed, the students that you can educate as a result of this wealth, even though it is not kind of pure. And it's very difficult to think about kind of purely, um, uh, kind of purely derived wealth uh, when you really think about it. So in history, we did see some changes in public policy, tax policy requirements in terms of giving by foundations and, and so forth. Uh, as we look forward, what are you also seeing in this area of democratizing generosity, democratizing philanthropy? Because as you indicated in, in your opening comment, uh, perhaps one way to, to kind of summarize a lot of these concerns is that wealth has been concentrated amongst the few. And when it comes to philanthropy, that can give an inordinate amount of power, even if it's well-intended. It can be an inordinate amount of power amongst the few, either through their individual giving or the foundations that they have established. So one of these phrases we start hearing now is we need to democratize philanthropy. We need to democratize generosity. What are you seeing in that regard in our sector? Well, I'm seeing a, a, a recovery or, or a new appreciation for the op opportunities to involve um, recipients in making decisions about how philanthropy will be mm -hmm. deployed. So uh, involving uh, grant uh, recipients in making grant decisions. So kind of remembering or recovering the importance of a community-based approach. 
to, to giving. So instead of seeing the uh, grant makers in this position of uh, power or superiority and grant receivers or re uh, simply a kind of uh, as subservient um, uh, kind of uh, receivers to try to be conscious about the, um, the power imbalance and to bring in some of the um, uh, people who receive the funds to help make the decisions about how the, the communal funds will, will be uh, distributed. So I think we're seeing um, more, more of that dynamic and people looking at that as well. I think we're also seeing a questioning of potentially um, the kind of the investment mentality that has become so prevalent over the past few um, generations about seeing uh, giving as an investment uh, kind of very similar to the way money would be invested in financial instruments, which creates a different kind of um, uh, sense of ongoing control because the investor wants to know exactly what the return is going to be. They end up continuing to be the owners of the, of, mm -hmm. of the funds, whereas, if you will, um, a, a simpler or, or a, a, a more genuine, if you will, understanding of giving is well, really just departing with your funds and allowing the control to go to those who receive the funds. So I think that's um, that, that was until very recently now that we've become very conscious of the inequalities and inequities of, in our society. That was a, non, um, a not uncommon way to really kind of, you know, sometimes it's disparaged as check writing philanthropy, but once you write the check, that was really the end of your control over it. You've made your decision, and now the control goes to the people who do the good work. And when we had this growing of the investment mentality, there was an assumption that the people with the money would maintain control over the outcomes and what's going on. And I think this critique is starting to um, make us question that kind of investment model, if you will, and, and whether that really is appropriate to philanthropy where you're actually trying to give something away rather than use the recipients to control uh, social outcomes. And so there are practical steps that we can take as we're fundraising. Uh, as uh, Dr. Pasek mentioned, we can definitely involve our beneficiaries. We should be doing that anyway in terms of our program and service design, as well as maybe in some of our you know, grant proposal, grant making, funding type of work as well. How about not having a give get on the board of directors so that people of all levels of wealth, including our neighbors who are low income, can serve on our boards of directors and are prohibited maybe because of their wealth. And don't forget about the small gifts. That comes up in the fundraising school all the time that certainly we need successful major gifts fundraising and capital campaign fundraising, but we need to uh, provide opportunities for everyone to be generous at their level of ability. Uh, Dean Pasek, one last question I have for you. And again, this comes up anecdotally sometimes in the fundraising school, and I've heard this from, from some of the people we teach. They're concerned about these critiques because they're concerned that those wealthy donors might say, hey, if you're gonna criticize me, fine, I'll, we'll solve that problem, I'll just stop giving. How would you respond to that concern from fundraisers as they're doing their major gift fundraising? I think it's a, it's a legitimate concern because when you're thinking about the bottom line and the funding, um, which is increasingly uh, seems to be concentrated, and we've recently had some uh, debates in places like the New York Times with Darren Walker or the Ford Foundation mm -hmm. addressing some of these issues. Um, clearly the right thing to do is to um, have boards better represent the communities that they serve. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because wealth is concentrated in other places, we worry about what that means for our, um, um, uh, for our bottom lines and for the sustainability of our organizations. 
So I think it's a, it is a leadership and a management challenge for the people who lead these organizations, that they are a challenge to make sure that all of their constituencies are fully involved in making these kinds of decisions, and that we need to have difficult conversations with uh, both the people who, in the past, we may not have brought to the board because uh, we worried that they didn't have the means to make those large gifts, but also talk to the people who do have the means and see what they think should be done about this situation and would they cede some control and cede some privilege in order to help this institution that they believe in become more inclusive and more diverse. So I don't think there are any simple answers. It is a, uh, it is a, it is a fundamental conversation in our society now and people who fundraise and lead need to engage these conversations and, uh, um, and, and have, uh, ha have uh, um, often uncomfortable conversations about what this means for the future of their organizations. But I think um, kind of, in my in my anecdotal experience, it's it's rarely useful to kind of create a bunker mentality mm -hmm. and kind of try to preserve something that is no longer really tenable, uh, given the the the, um, the all the stakeholders that we seek to serve in nonprofit organizations. And I think it's uh, it's an opportunity for some bold leadership to really have those to lead with those uncomfortable conversations and and march forward rather than creating a bunker mentality because that rarely, um, that rarely um, uh, creates a, a positive future, I think. Thank you for your thoughtful critique of the critiques of philanthropy. Sure. And yeah. as Dean Pasek has shared this wisdom and this guidance with us and, and thought-provoking, as he said, there are no easy answers, uh, this is important for us in our everyday work as fundraisers. And we also want to let you know, this is the type of approach you'll be able to enjoy if you participate in our master's degree program. Our master's degree program is not a how-to, it's, it's a why, and it's a what next. And it's exploring these big questions that don't have easy and clear answers. And, and students are encouraged to engage in this type of constructive discussion, debate, rebuttal, uh, and you'll be able to, to dive deeply. And what is that doing for you? It's preparing you for leadership in the philanthropic sector. In fact, it is the master's degree in philanthropic studies. It could be called the master's degree in philanthropic leadership because we're exploring these important topics at this depth and preparing you for your next steps forward. Uh, the master's degree is available entirely online and you can learn more at philanthropy.iupui.edu. That's where you're also gonna find the fundraising school if you're that practitioner who's looking to hone up on your skills and have colleagues who wish to do so. We have 20 public courses in 18 U.S cities. We train about 6,000 people around the world, primarily around the world and elsewhere in the United States with our custom training. We can design a course specifically for your team, your nonprofit, your association, your region. Of course, we have our quarterly webinars and these free podcasts all on the website at philanthropy.iupui.edu. With Dr. Amir Pasek, the Dean of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more up to date on this first day from the fundraising school. Thank you.